This week on the Southgate Student Ministry Podcast, we open up to the scriptures and look at one of the most difficult things that we can study as we continue our series, First Aid, and talk about the wrath of God and how the wrath of God makes him a perfect, wonderful father. So sit back, open your Bible with us, and study the wrath of God. Um, this this passage leading up to Exodus chapter 12, you've seen a lot of crazy things take place. Moses and Aaron have gone to Pharaoh um, before this, and and they went in there and they looked at at, at Pharaoh and they said, Hey, we have our people here in bondage. Um, our our people are are needing to be let go. It's being commanded. Um, that, that you let my people go. And Pharaoh was like, not, not at all. And so Moses and Aaron said, all right, you're not going to let our people, my, my people go. What we're going to do is God is going to bring plagues down on you. And so all these plagues ha- have just been tormenting Egypt up to this point in chapter 12. Um, and, and what keeps on happening is Pharaoh gets a plague, torments them, makes them miserable, and then uh, has a hard heart, and he says, not people, you can't go. And so they're being forced, the Israelites, to suffer in the land of Egypt. And because of that, God is making the uh, Egyptians suffer as well. When we're about to get to Exodus chapter 12, which, by the way, is going to be one of the largest moments by far in all of Scripture. I think that there are several defining uh, moments in Scripture. I think this is one of them. Without what takes place in chapter 12, a lot of things that we're going to see repeated throughout the Bible aren't talked about throughout the Bible. Um, The Israelites are ready to be set free at this point. Uh, Moses was ready for the people to set free. But more importantly, God is ready at this point for his people to be set free. He had tried the river of blood, the frogs, the lice, the flies, the death of livestock, the boils, the, the hail, the locusts. The darkness and through all of it Pharaoh has been refusing it was a world where God was causing these plagues to come in and destroy the lives of the Egyptians yet they wouldn't break they wouldn't budge and they stood strong in their stubbornness and that's what happens as we get to Exodus chapter 12 as we go in and we get to read what's going to take place here um, in this this Bible-changing moment. Starting in in verse 1, let's let's read. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lambs shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, 
when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So we get to this point, and, and, and uh, Ian, stop running around. So we get to this point in, in this story, and, and God is sitting here, and he's continuously, he gives Moses and Aaron this, this, these instructions for the entirety of Israel. He says, okay, here's what you're going to do. This is, this is the message that you're going to tell the congregation. You might be sitting here, why on a, on a day where we're sitting here talking about first aid, why a series like this are we going through this? What is about to happen is God is about to say, I'm done with the people of Egypt. Verse 7, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts in the lintel of the house in which they eat it. Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you in the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Sent this out in a text earlier that we were going to be studying this tonight. That we were going to be studying the wrath of God, which is a weird topic. But to just introduce it, I, I want to say the wrath of God is indescribable, and in my opinion, it's the single most frightening thing that has ever. And I want, to, I want to preface this entire lesson, and I hope that I don't sit here tonight and you're like, man, this is the Debbie Downer lesson. And trust me, as I was sitting here preparing for this, and as I was going through it earlier today, I was like, like in prayer, because this is a lesson that, that's not necessarily fun to talk about. But I want to preface all of this uh, with this idea, it's like, yes, God has wrath, and we're going to study that wrath in a fullness tonight, but what is he always going to do? And, and we're going to get more to this towards the end of the lesson as well. But notice like in, in this moment, in Exodus chapter 12, when he's going to pour out his wrath, pour out his anger, he's going to give a way out. He's going to give a way to avoid it. Um, so he says, hey, put that blood on your doorpost, on, uh, above your door, on your um, lintel, put it all over, and the wrath of God's not going to enter your house. And so tonight as we go through and we have this whole discussion on the wrath of God and the difficulty that comes along with it and the, and the um, pain and, and maybe the confusion that's going to come along with it, keep in mind that God never intended for the wrath of God to be poured out on us. Because when we decide that we're going to wear God in our life, we are going to be kept clean. The reason we're discussing this tonight, as we open up a first aid kit, as I googled what you find in a well-stocked first aid kit, something that popped up that shocked me was disposable gloves, but it shouldn't have shocked me. It makes total sense. It's this idea of a glove, and, and you know, I could have had a picture up here of somebody using it in a medical field, but this idea of, hey, you're going to wear a rubber glove when you're doing um, something disgusting because it's going to keep your hands clean and sanitized, and also you're not going to cause other people to get sick. So it has a lot of uh, purposes. The gloves have a purpose, 
And what our goal is going to be tonight is to look at this idea of, of uh, keeping ourselves clean, but on a weird sort of sense. Instead of, it's really easy to sit here and be like, yeah, what we got to do is, is, is keep ourselves free from the world. And in this sense, our disposable gloves are going to be keeping us free of the wrath of God. I want to discuss how we can go through that whole process of protecting ourselves from the wrath of God. The wrath of God in itself, it's a topic, and I've talked a little bit about it, it's a, it's a topic we're afraid of. It doesn't give us that, that same good, like that feel-good feeling that we always talk about. Um, if, if you sit here and listen to the songs that we were just singing, uh, and I'm trying to think back to some of the songs that we sang, I don't think there was a moment in those songs where it's like, like yes, the wrath of God like is powerful and everything like that. If you sing in Christ alone, um, one of the lines is like, the wrath of God was satisfied. That might be like the only one of the few songs where it sits here and talks about uh, the wrath of God that we sing. If you turn on the radio um, and listen to any type of Christian music, if you listen to any lessons, most of the lessons that John and I will give will fail to mention the wrath of God. Why? Because it's not something that's enjoyable to talk about. It's something that's a little bit tougher of a topic, yet it's a valid part of Scripture. We're going to be spending a lot of time tonight in Romans chapter 1. So go ahead and turn over there. We're going to jump around a little bit after getting over there, but be sure to mark it um, in your Bible so you can get back there uh, without a problem. Romans chapter 1 is where we're going to be um, tonight uh, for a majority of the time to really try to capture this uh, idea of the wrath of God. This is really, like I said, there's lots of moments. We just read in Exodus where the wrath of God is displayed. But in the New Testament, we're going to get Paul. He's going to directly talk about the wrath of God here in Romans chapter 1. But I want us to start in verse 16, where you're not going to see him talking about the wrath of God. We're going to see him hitting on a little bit different of a subject. So Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's great. To the Jew first and also the Greek, everyone. For in the righteousness of God that is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul's sitting here and he starts out this paragraph and he's like, hey, by the way, salvation is great. I'm feeling good. He's beaming ear to ear because he's like, I get to talk about salvation. I get to talk about the grace that God has given us, the faith that we can have in Christ and the joy that comes from us. And, and why wouldn't he be sitting here? Like he writes with, uh, I'm trying to think, he sits here and, and writes this. And it's almost like, I feel like when, when you read the words, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, I feel like he's, he doesn't use exclamation points, but I feel like if he ended that with there instead of using a comma, it would have been like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Like, there's an exclamation point all day long. Um, and he points that idea out of, hey, the gospel is not something to be ashamed of because it's salvation. He's setting up this huge statement that he's about to make that a reader of this is going to recognize if they understand who God is. If they've, if they've read anything about God, if they've read the scriptures in the past, and he's about to bring this all to light for even the Christians to see in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We read a whole lot of For I Am Not Ashamed of the Gospel. And we read a whole little of For the Wrath of God is Revealed from Heaven against all ungodliness. When is the last time you studied verse 18? I don't know if you can remember studying any time recently verse 18, or if you've ever heard a lesson on verse 18. It's just not something that we study. And as I was going through this idea, it, it almost irritated me a little bit, not irritated me in the sense of, it's like, man, why, why does God have wrath? Maybe when you hear this idea, maybe you have a little bit of anger in your heart. I don't know, I can see where that would be an easy Reaction. I could see myself sitting there, and, and I've been in this place before where it's like, God, if you're going to pour wrath out on me, if you are going to pour wrath out on the unrighteous, why on earth would you create people? Why would you create me if, if, if God's wrath is going, if your wrath is going to be poured out upon us? Why do we sit there, and, 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 and we could sit there and question why, and it could make us angry. But instead of thinking about it in a way that makes us angry, instead of sitting there and, and saying, yeah, like I have to deal with, with this, God created me and, and I have to deal with his wrath, instead of sitting there and thinking about it like that, I want us to, to think about it through a different method. See, Paul, like we just mentioned, is going to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for that's where I get my salvation. That's where he references this. Then he's going to almost immediately dive in to this idea of the wrath of God. And I want us to compare this to modern evangelical methods, because this is what Paul is doing. He's writing to the Romans, people who haven't heard the gospel, and, and he's going to try to get this message across. I, really quickly, the church in the early times was growing. Uh, there were around 300 million people in the world, and, and over a course of 100 years or so, um, after this was written, really 150 years after Jesus walked the earth, the church grew from like that zero point to like a 1.7 million people, which is sitting there and it's like, well, that's not a percentage-wise, not a huge number of growth. But when you think about their ability, like they didn't have any technology, they had roads and horses and letters in their mouths. That's how they could spread the gospel. That's pretty significant growth for that time period of people who said, yes, I believe in that Jesus guy. And you compare that today to the church in the United States, for Christians in the United States, where we went from 10 years ago, literally in, in 2009, the people in the United States who would say, yes, I'm a Christian, was at 75%, to now it's at below 66%. That's a 10% decrease. If you look at it in a world setting, it's like 700,000 people who would say, I don't believe and the gospel anymore if you look at it from a whole world setting and take those statistics to that side of things. Like I said, I want us to take a second to look at the two ways um, that that we, like, that it's the ways that we're using now that are causing Christianity to shrink versus what Paul was using in when he wrote this book, uh, Romans, back in the day. Um, you think about in today's times, uh, if you want to use an evangelical method, think about the songs they sing. We've already mentioned this. There's not negativity in them. 
Um, they're very like, like, hoorah, hoorah, God is great, God is good. All great meanings. All powerful meanings, right? Um, I will rise up. I will face the world. These are the songs that we're singing today. They're very positive. Um, a lot of the world will sit there and, and say, hey, it's a do-what-you-want-to-be-happy type of Christianity where, where God uh, wants you to be happy. We've talked a little bit about that in the past. I would love to study more into that. The moralistic therapeutic deism, which um, is really nerdy that I just know that off the top of my head. It, it's this idea of how live however you want, and then you can come and be a part of our church. We don't really care. Go out, do what you want every other day of the week, but as long as you're showing up, uh, we don't care. We accept everyone, um, even if you know you don't want to display Christ in your life. You can be a part of our body without a problem. It's it's this idea of live generously, and God will give you so many blessings on earth. This is the Christianity that we are like used to in our world today. This is what we will oftentimes uh, talk about. This is the thing that like like hey, why should I be a Christian? Well, let me just tell you. Jesus saves. Like, this is the mindset that we have, which I hope that I'm not, like, skewing thoughts. Jesus does save. This is, Jesus does have grace. But we as a, as a culture, as, as anyone who, who dons himself a Christian, a majority of people will go with that uh, ultra-positive approach. Yet we look here at Paul, who is writing this letter to the Romans, right? And this is going to be a letter that's going to heavenly, heavenly, Heavenly influence? Heavily influence? I guess it could be both. We're talking about the Bible. But uh, heavily influence uh, an entire culture, um, and they're going to take this book and read it. Uh, he sits here and says, hey, by the way, I'm not ashamed that I believe in Jesus Christ, and I believe that God is God. That's a powerful thing. What's he say? There's salvation from what? The wrath of God. He talks about, I have this salvation, and then he's going to go in and talk about the wrath of God. And then he says, by the way, if there's those who are unrighteous, God's wrath is going to be poured out on them. A lot of the songs they would sing in the early days were from the Psalms. And if you were to go into the Psalms, what you would find is the psalmists were not afraid to discuss the idea of the wrath of God. They were not afraid of this topic like we are today. And so it comes to this idea of why was the church growing then versus now when it is shrinking? I think the answer is that they did not sugarcoat who God is, and God as he is, is perfect. If we sit here and try to sugarcoat God and say that all God is, all God is, is love, and, and all he wants to do is, is let you be happy, then we aren't going to show people the perfect God who he is. We're not giving uh, them his full character. Nobody wants to follow a God who isn't perfect. And also nobody wants to find a salvation when they feel like they don't need to be saved. If all people are hearing is a message like, go out, do what you want, and then come in and believe in this Jesus guy, why on earth would they ever believe in Jesus? What's the inspiration for them to go believe Jesus. And I know some of us could sit here and be like, well, if God has wrath, I would sit here and say, like, anger management problems are a bad character trait and all that. Um, but I don't want us to sit here and think as we're going through this that the wrath of God is a problem with God because it's a beautiful part 
of who he is. If God didn't have wrath when people sinned, when people went against him, he would not be a God. He perfectly hates sin just as much as he loves people. If we take him and make him a father who only loves, then we're blindly, we're like, we've missed the perfection of God. And if we sit here and we make take God and make him a father who only hates, we've totally missed the perfection of God. God is both loving and full of wrath, and that is perfect. I think that we need to be able to talk and understand the wrath of God so that people understand who God is and have a desire to be saved. To that idea of having a desire to be saved, I want you to imagine with me for just a moment that I'm standing there, and, and say I'm standing there in Columbia Square, outside of Mule Town. I, I got myself a delicious uh, coffee, and I'm sitting there sipping on it, just happily looking at the Christmas tree, and out of nowhere, boom, someone pull out, form tackles me into the ground, and, and just, I'm scraped up against the ground, and they're like, bro, I just saved you, and it's like, from what? Like, I would be irritated, right? There was no intimate threat of danger, and if you were like, I just saved you, man, like, I'd be like, dude, I'm going to punch you in the face right now. You just tackle me. Um, there's no desire to be saved, and there's nothing to be saved from. Now, change the situation. I'm sitting outside of uh, Mealtown Coffee, looking at the Christmas tree, happily drinking my latte, and suddenly a car pulls by, and there's a guy in the back of it with a gun who points it at me, and out of nowhere, someone comes up and tackles me behind a wall, and the, the guy who was shooting the gun totally misses me, and the guy saves my life. Well, I saw a threat of danger. I saw that there was, that there was something that could harm me, and I'm feeling good and thankful that this person saved me. The thing is, is that as we look at this study, as we go through this this evening and, and study these qualities of God, if we try to push these, this, this beautiful quality of God to the side, if we try to push the wrath of God to a place where, where we don't want to see it, where we don't want people to see it, there's going to be absolutely no desire by them to ever be saved. And when we try to make that attempt, they will get irritated. I want us to go through tonight four um, different parts of the wrath of God and so we can hopefully better understand it. They're, they're different topics. Uh, starting out with the quality of God's wrath. The quality of God's wrath. I think that's kind of a weird phrase. Um, like, what do you mean by the quality of God's wrath? What does that uh, entail at all? Uh, God's wrath isn't of a cheap quality. You know, when you think about a cheap quality item, I, I really hate, uh, th and, and this might just be me um, being a total loser, but if something is like of cheap quality, it gets on my nerves. Like, I would much rather buy something that's more expensive that is going to serve me properly and for a long time than buy something cheap that's just going to break um, immediately. God's wrath is not of cheap quality. It's not just something that exists just to exist. It's of divine quality. And, and I think about, when we think about wrath and anger, you might have a lot of people who come immediately to your mind. Like when you say the word wrath, maybe it's a parent who loses their temper, maybe it's a friend 
who, who like if you say one rude thing to them, uh, they lose their mind on you. Whatever it might be, we probably have somebody come to mind when we think about this idea of wrath. But this wrath of God is not like anything we're used to seeing here on earth because it's this heavenly wrath. It's a quality that, that we're not used to seeing, right? Scripture talks about um, heaven and how awesome it's going to be and how we can't comprehend it. We can't comprehend this heavenly wrath. The wrath of God is never going to be unrighteous. And maybe if you're sitting here tonight saying, hey, anger is in fact a character flaw. I've seen it in people and people get irrational when they're angry and it's terrible and people really shouldn't get angry. I want to challenge that idea because God's wrath will never be irrational. God will never get angry at something that doesn't make any sense. And what we can do is, is look at an example of when God came to earth uh, in Jesus and, and look at a pla- the place where he gets angry. So this common story of Jesus getting angry, make sure you've marked Romans um, chapter 1. We're going to be back here soon. But let's turn over to John chapter 2. And this is the moment that we see Jesus get angry. I'm sure many of us have probably seen this story before in the past, but I want us to go here and, and study uh, this idea um, of what made Jesus angry. We're going to start in verse 13, and, and after we read through it, we're going to go through and, and break this down a little bit deeper and try to go into it a little bit more. Um, but verse 13 starts, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. What makes Jesus angry here? It's not something minor. It's not something little. It's it's people who are spiritual leaders. People who who have taken the most spiritual place to the Jewish religion at this time, the one of the religion of our God at this time, and they have made it a dishonest place. In Matthew 21, we see the same story. He calls it a den of robbers. And what makes Jesus angry here is it was this idea of these people were sitting in there and they would sit there with these animals that they would sell to people. And all these people would come in for Passover and, and they, would, they would have uh, their animals that they were going to sacrifice. Not everyone was wealthy. Not everyone had the money. And, and the people who were sitting there in the temple would look at those animals and be like, mm, not sure your animal is good enough for sacrifice. You need one of our animals all ready for sacrifice, and they would jack the price up, and, and people would have to, to, to forfeit meals, and they would have to suffer because they would have to spend excess amounts of money that they didn't have to purchase these animals that the, of the people who were sitting in the t- temple that Jesus is getting angry at. And these animals weren't any spe- more special, but the animals that they were bringing weren't messed up. These people would just buy the animals from them for a, a, a small um, 
a small return, and they would just toss it in the stockpile and keep on reselling these same animals, just raking in the money. Was this wrath from Jesus at this moment warranted? It was absolutely warranted. And really when I read about this and I, I study about this today, it makes me angry today. What made God on earth angry and what makes God have this wrath today is a dishonoring of God. It's all warranted anger. Just like any good human being feels anger at evil, God is also going to feel anger on evil. I want you to think about somebody, these people who will, who will go into a, a school and, and, and take young children and shoot young children. How angry that makes us feel at that person. The, the wrath that we sit there and say, how dare they do that? And, and if we said, no, I think that's okay that they did that, then people will look at us and be like, you have no heart and you are evil in yourself. We have wrath at moments like that. And just like we have wrath in moments of evil, God has wrath in moments of evil. And he only has wrath when it's worth something. It's a wrath that is quality. Another thing is the timing of God's wrath. We're going back to Romans real quickly. Uh, that exact verse that we read in, in Romans chapter 1, I think it's the all-teller. I say the all-teller. Uh, it goes through a lot uh, in discussion of, of this idea of wrath. The timing of God's wrath. Notice how it's worded. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppresses the truth. Now, you're like, how does that have anything to do with timing? Notice the word that says revealed. Um, the wrath of God is revealed. The thing to understand about the wrath of God is that it is constantly being revealed. It's constantly being poured out. You can sit here and think back through scriptures and, and think about all the times when the wrath of God is revealed. Think about Adam and Eve when they trusted the serpent over God and they were, because of the wrath of God, kicked out of the garden forever. Think about the wrath of God when the flood covered the entire earth because the earth was so evil. Think about the wrath of God and the destruction of, of Sodom and Gomorrah and how evil those cities were. And when you just sit there and study those cities and realize how sick all those people were, the wrath of God appeared in that moment. Think about th that time that we read just a moment ago in the killing of the for firstborn of the children of, of Egypt. And, and you think about as Pharaoh's army was crossing the Red Sea and the Red Sea came back in on them, the wrath of God in that moment, the wrath of God was shown in the death of Ananias and Sapphira when they were dishonest in their lives. We could keep on going and find other instances where the wrath of God was displayed. But what we see is that the wrath of God is not something that's necessarily always going to be saved for the, the late days. It can be poured out constantly. Yet in our lives, we look around, and we know of a whole lot of people who are real evil people who haven't had the wrath of God being poured out on them. That doesn't mean that their bowl is not being filled. Flip over to chapter 2 of Romans. And thank you for hanging in 
uh, here this evening. I know that this is a study that's not as like hype or exciting, but I think it's so necessary for us to study. Verse 5 says what? Because of your hard um, and impotent, is that what that word is? My script is really small. Uh, because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Says, by the way, if you're not getting wrath poured on you as an unrighteous person right now, the wrath is being stored up, it's filling up the bowl of wrath to one day be dumped out on those people. The next thing that I think we need to see and study um, with the extent and nature of God's wrath, or is the extent and nature of God's wrath. I think it's uh, really neat to see the extent of his wrath. Um, who gets it poured out on them? What is the reasoning for getting it poured out on them? Romans 1.18 is the describer of this once again. I know we keep on coming back to it. Uh, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against who? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. If we go over, and we're going to go over to Jude in just a minute, it's going to say something very similar. Uh, here's the thing to think about. All ungodliness. And, and this gets brought up over and over again because I think it's it just is so telling. Maybe your mind is like, uh, Ben, have you read Romans 3.23? Um, all have sinned and fallen short. Literally, it's all ungodliness, so... Romans 3.23, am I included in that wrath? And the scary answer to this, this question is like, yeah, we are. We are included in this wrath that is being talked about here. And if we were to sit here and say, hey, you need to live a life that's perfect enough to avoid the wrath of God, it would be like asking somebody who's standing on the beach in North Carolina to jump across the Atlantic Ocean to Spain. It's not possible. You can't get close to it. Nothing you can do can get you close to it. You can't even get barely of a percent, like percentage of a way there. Like it's because of math, it's like a percentage, but not a high one. And what we're gonna do in, in just a second is discuss how we can make that leap across the Atlantic Ocean. So get ready for it. Um, but God is very specific on who he's pouring his wrath out on. I'm going to go to Jude real quickly. Uh, if you're taking notes and want to write it down, I'm going to Jude, verse 14 through 15. There's no chapter. Um, but Jude, 14 and 15. It was also about the, uh, these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment and all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds, uh, of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Uh, if we would have read back a little bit, Jude sits there and talks about Cain and Balaam and Korah and these people in the olden days uh, that the God's wrath was poured out upon because they didn't show reverence to God. And then he brings it around to Enoch, who did live a godly life, and if you remember, he was saved without dying, which is pretty crazy. Um, but the point remains, those who choose a lifestyle outside of Christ are the ones who are going to be faced with the wrath of God. Because God hates sin. Real quickly, we're going to go to the cause of God's wrath. 
the cause of God's wrath is going to be anyone who surpasses the truth of God with their own truth, which is sin. It, it, it's if the world opposes the idea of a holy God because if a God is holy, it means that they're going to be held accountable for their actions. We as humans want our own truth to be greater than sin, or to be greater than God's truth, which is sin, and that is a cause of God's wrath. To wrap up tonight, the wrath of God is real and it's frightening. You think back to Exodus chapter 12. We went back there and looked at it. And, and, and you think back to that story, and then if you go to Romans chapter 5, I think you see a verse that stands uh, so strong in this moment. Therefore, this is verse 1 and 2 of Romans 5, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith to his grace in which we stand, and now we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. When we choose Christ, we decide, yes, I'm going to be baptized, and I'm going to, I'm going to live my life, I'm going to put everything I have into him. We're going to have grace from this wrath of God that we talked about tonight. It's like putting on a disposable glove. When you sit there and say, I'm going to choose Jesus, I'm going to choose to walk in the light, I'm going to, I'm going to choose him over everything else in my life, what we're going to see is that the God of wrath isn't going to, or the, the, the wrath of God will not apply to us. It doesn't have to. We have chosen to sit there and put it all aside and say, you know what, forget it. I'm protected from it, and nothing in this world is going to touch me. I'm going to walk in the light with every ability I have because the wrath of God is something to fear and something to know exists. I hope tonight that you have, if you've never thought about the wrath of God, I hope that it's something that tonight uh, you got to think a little bit about and maybe understand a little bit more about what it is and where it comes from and why it exists. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast about the disposable glove and how that relates to the wrath of God. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be sure to hear all the lessons from Southgate Student Ministry. Have a blessed day.